Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Grammy-nominated jazz musician and composer Chris Brubeck. We caught up with him on December 8th to talk about the 2020 CD he curated called Time Outtakes with his father, the late, great Dave Brubeck. This Grammy-nominated composer continues to distinguish himself as an innovative performer and composer who is clearly tuned into the pulse of contemporary music. He has a great story about releasing the new album of never-before-heard music and much more about his career and iconic father. Enjoy. I'm, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to speak with you. Right on. Hey, uh, you know, before we get into everything here, I just want to kind of ask you, you know, the outtakes are, are quite phenomenal, and I, I, think it, I think it's a testament to the power and strength and timelessness of, of that era of music and just what Dave gave to the world. But what is it like to, to hear this during a pandemic in such a surreal time on planet Earth? <laughs> I like the way your brain thinks, young man. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the truth, I was uh, recovering from a mild case of COVID, and so your question is right on point, because I was uh, listening in bed for about a month and a half uh, on headphones and working very hard, uh, like editing and equalization and producing this record with our engineer by via correspondence, you know. Like at, yeah. at, at 222 and the third bar of the fourth chorus, the piano is a little hot. Can you tone it back? You know, that kind of stuff, you know. So, and, and it was transcendent. I got to tell you, it took me back in time, like the Wizard of Oz or something. I got transported up and away into a, a different world that was just so beautiful to hear because it's the same sounds I heard growing up with the same genius musicians. And just to hear different solos on all these great tunes and, and the evolution uh, that occurred, uh, you know, I, I thought was endlessly fascinating. And I know that, you know, of course I would think that, but I'm happy to say a lot of other people think that too. It's the most popular jazz recording of all time, and that's the thing, I think, too, the timelessness of this recording. Why, why do you think it would be something, if you were back like 200 years and played this, or you went ahead 200 years, there's a level of this where it's almost like a David Lynch film. You might not be able to decipher exactly when it was released because there's such a beautiful tonal harmonic quality to what was put out. It, it was it was amazing. Yeah, it's definitely when a record like this happens, it's just everything is happening at the right time for some kind of reason. <laughs> you know, that, right. that it's uh, like written in the stars or woven into the fabric of the universe. I mean, I've always felt like, uh, for example, like I grew up where the Beatles were my hero. And I'm thinking that like all the communication power and songs and beautiful melodies that those four guys had when they all came together it's just astonishing i mean it's so supernatural it's like god put four angels on earth and put these uh, guys with the bang haircuts together to do this and and i feel in their own way that the dave rubik quartet of the classic quartet was sort of uh, amongst that you know group of angels. But I also think Louis Armstrong's like a musical angel or B.B. King. I mean, just some people are just born with this amazing power to, to play music and communicate with people all over the world. So you've clearly been bathed in jazz your entire life, but when was it that you discovered that your father was this figure, this, this jazz hero? When did it hit you where you were like, wow, you kind of had that separation of, you know, family and this, this figure that's huge in the world of music. 
Well, I would say that, you know, there were times as little kids, he would say, like, if he had a local concert, does anyone want to come? You know, and sometimes my brothers would say yes, and sometimes they'd say no. But we'd have a deal, because my father had a very bad back, having broken it uh, in a swimming accident in Hawaii in the early 50s. It'd be like, okay, you can come, but all the way home, you have to sit in the back seat and rub my shoulders. <laughs> so I'd say, okay, uh, I'll make the trade. And then I started noticing, wow, there's hundreds, if not thousands of people loving this music. And, of course, I was attracted to it and loved it and would be in the wings watching Joe Morello and Paul play and everything. But there was a specific incident later on when I was you know, younger, like maybe 12 or something like that, when we were at a diner in New Jersey, and it was the old kind of diners, where you had the, the jukebox with the flipping pages right at every booth. You know what yeah. I mean, right? And so sure. I was flipping through, and I saw, like, you know, it was like, you know, maybe Good Vibrations or Surfing USA, the Beach Boys or something by the Beatles. And then I saw Dave Brubeck, Take Five. I'm going, oh, my God, my dad is in there with the Beatles and the Beach Boys. He must really <laughs> mean something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. So was it always a foregone conclusion that you were going to become a musician? Did you have other dreams? How did all of that kind of start to become something you said, this is what I want to do? It was just organic for me. I mean, when like when I would go to concerts and then they would see my dad's, the camaraderie of seeing um, uh, the, the quartet rehearse at my house and the musicians and the, and the good vibes and the beautiful music and seeing fans interact, I mean, you, you go like, wow, that seems like a real good karma way to, to, to lead your life, you know, it was just amazingly attractive, and, and I was very lucky that, uh, you know, you, you could have all those feelings, and if you didn't have some innate kind of talent, you'd be screwed and frustrated, but my dad could see that I had talent, like, for example, my younger brother Matthew is 10 years younger than me, he's now a professional cellist and improvises and plays all over the place, but... For example, he could whistle melodies in the crib before he could talk. So I'm going wow. like, so that impressed me. And, you know, I was only 10 years old at the time. <laughs> but my dad, he took me to a special piano teacher who immediately started putting me on, on simple uh, bar talk pieces because he saw that my ears were so good that I could fake my way through just supposing what the next notes ought to be, so I'd probably play them on piano. So he said, I want him to have something unpredictable to force him to read. <laughs> and, and that was when I was five. And the reason my father wanted me to play piano, which I didn't want to play, politically I knew, like, why well, would I want to play piano? He's obviously got that covered in his world renown. You know, I don't want to do that. <laughs> But my dad wanted me to learn how to read treble clef and bass clef because in his supreme wisdom, he said, someday, young man, you might want to be a composer and an arranger, and you need to know how to write music, which he was really into passing on to his children because Dave was incredibly weak at reading music. A lot of people think he had a classical background. Only his mother was a great classical pianist. He heard piano all the time. He had dyslexia so bad that he couldn't read classical music very well at all, despite the fact he could write all this wonderful stuff. That was slow wow. motion. So it's a really a strange way that he you know, processed music. It's fascinating. On a human level, what, what was it that he gave you that was so infectious that made you love music? Obviously, there's technical prowess. There's things that go into understanding music. But on a human level, as a man, as a father, as a family man, what did he give you that made you love what you do so much? My dad was really a kind person, 
and he was a humble person. And, you know, and I hear all these stories about Buddy Rich and, you know, how he treat musicians on the road and all that kind of crap, you know. And, and uh, just, you know, that wasn't my dad's way. He grew up as a cowboy. You know, he worked for a dollar a day from sunrise to sunset. And so he grew up with, quote, unquote, common people. And um, he had great respect for them. And some of his best friends, you know, in his later years were just, you know, people like we knew from our house, like, you know, gardeners and, you know, neighbors and that kind of thing. He he wasn't a highfalutin kind of guy. But the other thing that I really admired about him was that he was turned on by every record company that could have offered him a record contract. And he started his own record company. He actually started Fantasy Records. Uh, and wow. he got screwed out of it, which is, I imagine how much my father would have if he still had half ownership of every Creedence Clearwater Revival recording that ever came out, you know, yeah. <laughs> because that's where fantasy records ended up. But the, the, the story of my dad's life is that belief in himself, my mom was an amazing force, always believing in him. And, and when we were really young, I mean, we, we were in very poor conditions, and he would work at a club and maybe make $100 a week, and we'd stay in an old hotel room, and we had it down to a routine, like, like gypsies. Like there was a big trunk, and the trunk were cots. My older brothers would sleep in the cots in the closet. My parents would have the bed. They'd open up a drawer because every hotel at least had one bad dresser and throw blankets in there, and that would become my crib. I mean, that's how we lived. And then um, then the quote-unquote overnight success uh, finally came, you know, after World War II, probably after, you know, uh, you know, 10 years of working really, really hard. Let me ask you this. After all of these years, and, and you're clearly a veteran that's been around quite a bit, what have you learned as a musician that you, in turn, have given to younger musicians? What's the best advice? What, what, what do you try to give them? Well, to me, my best advice uh, is to have broad musical appetites. You know, don't become a musical snob. If you want to survive, of course, that's advice pre-COVID. <laughs> I mean, now yeah. no one's working anywhere, so it doesn't matter what kind of advice I would give. I guess my advice now to young musicians is wear a mask and gloves in a scuba tank when you go out. You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> but, you know, pre-COVID uh, would be, you know, have wide appetites for music. Like for me, I, um, I played rock and roll. Uh, I took that you know, into the mid '70s, and then my father asked me to join his groups, and so then I really it went all the way into the jazz universe. But at the same time, I had songs that Patti LaBelle recorded and things like that, so I had a foot in, in several different kinds of worlds. And then I did become a more of a composer, arranger type of person, and so, so to have a broad musical experiences and skills and apply them. And the other thing is that everyone you ever know or you ever meet, uh, the longer I live, I see that you keep these relationships and you cultivate them. And you never know when the person, like when you were in school, that you agreed to play in their senior recital for nothing. You know, 20 years later will be, you know, some person with signing power at Verve Records or something. I mean, that happens all the time. So uh, the, the network. And the other thing you see is that there's these crazy synchronicity, serendipity patterns that happen in life if you live long enough where it's beyond science who you're going to run into and how they're going to help you. You just uh, live a good life and, and sort of the musical angels will come down and, and bless you eventually, I believe. So ultimately, at the end of the day, with this release, with the outtakes, what do you want the audience, what do you want the world to get and garner from these newly unearthed tapes? 
I hope they get the literally the, the goosebump thrills that I got from hearing just like what a genius Paul Desmond gets uh, plays. You know, when he plays on Kathy's Waltz, uh, he hits his third chorus and he goes through these amazing intervallic leaps at the top of his range, and they're just they're just so beautiful. So uh, you know, my admiration for his uh, music and his lyricism just gets reignited and. Uh, when I listened to all 12 hours of these sessions, I was also uh, reaffirmed about the very interesting relationship the musicians had in their banter. Like Gene Wright and Dave were reliable enough friends that Gene would joke, there's a little place, uh, we have a banter track at the end of the record, just to give people a little flavor, you know, and Gene Wright says, you blew it, Dave. You know, and I could say the the way he did it was to relax that, you know, and then I could also hear that my dad was really encouraging to everyone else, like, uh, they would really struggle to play Take 5. That uh, The version that's on there, you'll hear not the famous jazz beat at all. Joe Morello had a whole different approach. And you know, they just, they, you could hear that they were doing something really new. You could hear that the famous Tio uh, Macero, the producer who produced many Miles Davis records, he actually had no idea what was coming next. You know, like Blue Rondo a la Turk, he would, he, you hear him go, Turkish, you know. So, like, this is Dave bringing in all these new compositions and all this fresh energy into the studio, and no one really knew what they had. I mean, Take 5 was just supposed to be a little ditty, to set up a drum solo for Joe Morello. You know, there you go. And on this record, he takes a huge, bigger kind of solo, and he takes a different solo on a, a track we discovered that wasn't even in the logbooks for the session, which we called Watusi GM. So I think it's, it's thrilling. We're getting lots of reviews where people say, if you own Time Out, you've got to own this record too. Because so many people, like almost, despite you know not even really knowing it, have almost memorized every solo on Time Out. But here you hear the material and you hear great solos that, that you've never heard before. So it's a real revelation and, and discovery and, and a thrill to a lot of people. Since we kind of have this tapestry of COVID-19 hanging around us, speaking of recovery, what do you hope both the audience and the musician gets when we do return? What silver linings they realize about life and music and seeing concerts live? I think, and a lot of people say this, and I hope it's not, you know, a mythological hope, is that everyone's going to realize how much they miss live music and what they, gain, what they get out of it. And, you know, there's something special. I was just talking to uh, a person who's uh, writing a book about uh, musicians and dreams, and I told him the story my dad told me about after World War II, they were temporarily living uh, in Los Angeles to do some club dates, and they went to, a, uh, at a request of two doctors, they went to a hospital where World War II vets were, and they were catatonic. They were shell-shocked. They, you know, they just sat there and didn't move all day. So the, the quartet came up and played jazz for them, and they started moving and blinking and then looking around, and, and the doctors and the nurses saying, this is amazing. You know, they're reacting to this live music in ways that we've, we've never seen. And part of the experiment was they recorded it, and the next day they play that concert uh, back on speakers for the same people that they had played for the, uh, earlier, and they had no reaction at all. So there is actually some sort of energy transference beyond the notes even. There's a thing that happens. I think, uh, you know, it's a communication between people from off the stage into the... Uh, 
audience. And I know for my dad, people like wonder, like, how could he, you know, play so long his career? He finally stopped playing live. I think when he was about ninety-one or something like that. And you know, a lot of times people, I've heard this, you know, hundreds of times. People say, "We went to see your dad. He was eighty-nine years old." We thought, "Uh oh, we maybe shouldn't have bought a ticket for this because he's so slow." coming off the wings, getting on stage. And then they all say, it was like a miracle. He started playing, and he would just shed 10, 20, 30 years, and he played. You couldn't believe how strong he played. You know, there is a magic. Uh, like when it came time for the family to say, you know, Dad, I know you love to play live, but I think that every time you go out, you'll bump your leg on an airplane, and then you go to the hospital with the doctor. And then, you know, just there were too many dues at a certain age. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, we knew that taking him away from this resource of magical strength he would get from the audience was uh, was also tough, you know. I often tell people who happen to be old enough to know the old version of Peter Pan and Mary Martin, there's a place where it's like she's asking the audience, do you believe for Tinkerbell, whose light glows harder and harder and harder and be able to fly around? And it's like there was just, uh, I know it may sound ridiculous to, to compare the two, but there is an energy that my dad would get from the audience. And as a performer who played hundreds of concerts with him, Boy, you can feel that energy, and it's it's an incredible thing. And my father, who wrote lots of religious music and choir music and that kind of stuff, we would always say that you know when the human race is involved in music, it's one of the few times that uh, God probably got what he thought he was he was bargaining for when he put human beings <laughs> on the earth, you know, to co-mingle and interact. You know, that's the upside of humanity, right there. You know, that that. Yeah. that relationship with the audience and the musicians on stage without a doubt so let's get to the essence of you everyone has a perception of you your family your friends your fans but you're the one living your life who do you think you are um i think i am someone who is amazingly lucky to have been born into this family and uh i kind of think that it's not random you know, how can it be random that my brother is a great drummer and he's born in this family? My brother Darius is a great piano player. He's born into it. My brother Matthew is a great child. He's born into it. We have these amazing parents, and, you know, we we're all born with talent, and we we're all lucky enough to be nurtured and all lucky enough to tour and record with my father and know all these musicians, and we've all accomplished a lot. So that's the first thing is I feel really, really lucky. And then the other thing is I feel very blessed um as a composer, you know, to usually every time I write a piece, someone hears it and then commissions me to write the next piece. Uh, so that's been a very big blessing. And it's been great to have, like, my dad come up uh, to Symphony Hall in Boston and hear the premiere of a piece that I was commissioned to write and know he's sitting right next to me. And, and we actually wrote pieces together for orchestra. We did a, an orchestral suite that was a tribute to the great Western photographer Ansel Adams. That was a fantastic project to work on, too. So I, I just feel very lucky to have uh, m my wife, Tish, who is so accomplished in all the areas that I'm weak in. <laughs> so she tries to keep me organized which, and uh, knows how to use computers and all those uh, kinds of things. And uh, I live in my little musical bubble, and I have you know great children and grandchildren, and I just... Uh, feel really happy. I just, everyone uh, could live forever, but I know that's technically impossible, so we hope that spiritually we live forever. Beautiful. That's a great answer. Chris, thank you for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz today. 
thank you for the music that you give the world. It's a beautiful family, and, and it's been there's so much joy that we get from all the music. Thank you very much. Hey, Joe, um, Joe, can I take one minute to tell you a, a Lee's Summit, Missouri story? Oh, please. <laughs> Uh, the reason I know that name with authority, and this is an unbelievable story, but true, is that going back to early 70s, the famous musical Jesus Christ Superstar yeah. was uh, sort of uh, a legal phenomena because it was a record before it was a Broadway show or a touring show. And there's a law that says if someone puts out a record, like if Creed's Clearwater Revival puts out Proud Mary, any bar band can play it. So in that sense, anyone could play the music from Jesus Christ Superstar. So the Kansas City Lyric Opera decided to do a big production of Jesus Christ Superstar in your, in your civic auditorium, which I know is still there because I saw it a couple of years ago when we played at the Kansas City Jazz Museum. They had a sold-out performance. They had opera singers. They hired me to listen to the record to make charts to put together a rock band to play. Okay, so I did that. When we got there, Robert Stigwood, who owned the rights to Jesus Christ Superstar, was out there trying to sue everyone and scared the Kansas City Lyric Opera from singing it. So they said, oh, my God, we have sold little houses. What are we going to do? So then they, then they said, hey, does anyone in your band play, Chris? And so my band, New Heavenly Blue, was there. So my bass player became Jesus Christ. Okay, wow. and my violin player became Steve Dudash. Okay, what does this have to do with Lee Summit? When I lost my bass player, I needed to find someone to play bass. And I was told, well, there's this kid who's so talented. I think he could probably play bass guitar in this thing. Well, we'll bring him over to rehearsal with Pat Bethany as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and when I see Pat at like Newport Jazz Festival or something, we always laugh. He said, "Chris, that wasn't my first big gig, you know, playing in that." <laughs> and then the icing on the cake of this ridiculous story is that Life Magazine, which was huge at the point, you know, bigger than People and all that, they sent out photographers all over the country. Look what's happening. Chris Brown, the bass player in New Heavenly Blue, is on the cover of Life Magazine the next week. Chris Brown as Jesus Christ, and there's a whole photo wow. spread inside about the whole band and the whole concert. Wow. <laughs> you can't make that shit up, right? You can't. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And we yeah. were rehearsing secretly on a farm to get ready for this show, trying to avoid Robert Stigwood's minions out there looking for Who are these guys that are going to do this show, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. And you all are so raw and positive about life. And I think at the end of the day, when I look back on 2020, I, as much as I'm capturing the voices of the jazz world, I think you all have given so much hope to the youth and you always do and you're, you're survivors and you're improv masters and i truly truly appreciate it oh well thank you so much and we appreciate what you do i mean we, we could not exist without the help of gentlemen like you thanks for listening and tuning in to another neon jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest cats in new york kansas city and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz and thanks to chris for his time music and story if you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.